Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, what'd it do? <laughs> what does that even mean? I just want to know how you're doing, man, okay? Oh. <laughs> it's a lovely morning, early morning for this podcast episode. And I just want to know how you're doing. I'm just waking up. <laughs> I wake up slowly. I know. Well, I hope you're awake enough for a very important question. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to own an abandoned mall or own a vacant lot? I would definitely own the abandoned mall. Yeah? Like, I can't really think of what I would do with a vacant lot. Like, I mean, I guess I could sell it. But I think... Like I could sell either one. True, but I could come up with stuff I'd want to do inside the mall. It's fair. It feels like uh, a vacant lot is kind of like a blank canvas, but an abandoned mall is like a canvas with like some, it's like a color in the numbers kind of thing. Like you have some direction for where you could go with what you have going on, rather than just starting from scratch. I think I'm with you. I think... My idea for a long time, as we've seen, like, the decline of the mall as an institution, has been to turn all malls into, like, paintball arenas. Because I think that would be so fun. Like, you've multiple levels. You've got a bunch of rooms that you could go into and deck out in certain ways. I think that would be super fun. I think you could just do some more cool stuff in, like, reclaiming the space of the mall revolting against our capitalist overlords and <laughs> and just doing something fun in there. I don't know what else I could do in a mall, though. I would have to keep Auntie Anne's, though. That's my only stipulation. Oh, definitely. That Auntie Anne's would have to remain. And Cinnabon. Okay, yeah, we can do that. The food court stays. We need Auntie Anne's, Cinnabon, cheap, questionable, but still delicious Chinese food, and a Sabaro for some pizza. <laughs> I always wonder, this is serious, why colleges don't buy old malls and convert them into campuses. Like, there's so much room, it's all inside, they have what's effectively a dining hall, you could make a store into some dorms, and I feel like it'd be relatively cheap, I mean, to buy this abandoned mall. They have a parking ton of parking. would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. You'd never have to... Go outside, like if it's pouring or snowing, and walk to your class. You could do it inside. There's plenty of space for Santa at Christmas time. And there's still Auntie Anne's. 
You're yeah, right. Exactly. I think that's a great idea. I think that's what we should do with our abandoned mall is try to sell it to a college and reimagine the entire higher ed experience. Deal. I like it. Deal. Okay. This, this is a great thought. And again, another million dollar idea. But I think we've got some scripture to talk about. So will you go ahead and read our passage? Sure. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, starting with the 33rd verse. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be built. The desolate land will be cultivated, instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden, the cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks, for offerings at Jerusalem during the appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Jonathan, why did you choose the NIV this week? Okay, so I know we've talked about the NIV before. Uh, we've talked about how it's a pretty accessible and widely used translation, and it's kind of middle of the road between translations that focus on a real strict word-for-word -word translations and others that focus on more so idea or thought-for-thought -thought translations. The main reason I chose this passage, though, is strictly personal, and I want to take you back to an image of ninth grade Jonathan who had his Life Application NIV Study Bible and was real gung-ho about doing a personal study of the book of Ezekiel <laughs> as a 14-year-old. Needless to say, it took me nine months doing it on and off, not faithfully, in any stretch. I remember approximately three things from the book of Ezekiel from that study. One of them was that Ezekiel gets into an argument with God about eating bread that's been cooked over human feces. Two is just earlier in chapter 36. It's a beautiful verse about God taking the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And then one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, which is the following chapter from what we read, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel is 48 chapters long, and I can remember approximately like a dozen verses from it. So I thought going back to this NIV language would be a fun way to share this ridiculous story of my childhood spiritual life, but also a fun way to revisit one of the books of the Bible that is just bizarre and has has a lot to dig into, and I think this passage does it as well. So as you read through it, what stood out to you? First, thanks for telling that story. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we retain 
more than a dozen verses from this. I hope so. The thing that stands out to me is the line, They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. I knew you were going to pick that. (laughs) I just was like, this phrase, it's just got Seth written all over it. Why did that stand out to you? The thing that's fascinating to me about the Garden of Eden is this is like going back. But I always think, like, oh, when we're making progress, like we want to move forward toward something. But this is a return to what what was like a long, long time ago at the beginning. So that's fascinating to me. So I always think like, okay, we're moving forward. But this is, um, to me, a move back toward the beginning. Mm. Yeah, and there's such a and there's such a contrast too, like setting the chronology aside, the number of times that the word desolate is used about this land that will become like the Garden of Eden, this contrast between land that has just been ravaged by by use, ravaged by the environment, natural disaster, becomes this lush, idyllic paradise in some sense. I think that's the sense of the story that we get from scripture and you know it's not always so explicit but these we we talk about it often on the podcast these parallels back to the creation stories are so meaningful because those stories are so meaningful in israel's collective memory and in their identity as a people and that explicit connection here is clearly something to pay attention to i think the next thing that stood out to me is that this regrowth and this rebuilding it has a purpose, right? It's so that the other nations know that the Lord has built this. And then later, God repopulates these cities. And that's how people know that, quote, I am the Lord. That's really fascinating to me, too. Yeah, that's that was one of the main takeaways I had from this story. This is, again, another theme that runs throughout the Hebrew Bible, is that these signs of God's work, these acts of God's restoration and healing of these things that have been laid waste, they are always to point beyond the people that you might say these actions are for. They are so the world can know, so the other nations can know, so that all may know that God is God. That's the theme from the book of Exodus as you think about the ten plagues, which uh, I think we're actually going to talk about in a couple episodes, which is exciting. Uh, but those are so Egypt can know that God is God. And there's this, there's almost like this contest of some sort that's going on among the peoples of the ancient world. Like whose God can do the dopest stuff <laughs> to show that, to show that they're the best. this is some pretty dope stuff i'd say so like resettling towns and rebuilding ruins and just like regrowing fields that have been destroyed and wiped out right and overgrown by weeds like this is this is miraculous yeah and for sure and before we get too much further into that idea i want to just pause and talk a little bit about the book of ezekiel and just kind of where this passage falls so The first question, and I think the primary question when you approach these kinds of books, is who's Ezekiel? And in the story of this book, Ezekiel is the son of a priest who becomes a priest himself 
as Israel is still living in the land promised to them by God, but becomes part of the group that's exiled to Babylon. And so Ezekiel is in this unique position as a prophet in exile, not one that's talking about the exile that's coming, not one that's looking back at why the exile happened, but is in the midst of, and is often actually out beyond Israel and is in Babylon where the people are experiencing exile. As a character in this narrative, Ezekiel both knows the old ways and the old practices, but is also all too familiar with this new reality that Israel found itself in. Now, a lot of scholars will say that rather than identifying a historical person named Ezekiel, that Ezekiel is representative of this collection of what are called oracles throughout the book that are talking about specific people groups and ideas and th related to the exile. And, and so we see here in this passage oracles about the restoration of Israel. Uh, this, like the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel is often divided into three different groups. And I don't want to get too deep into this, uh, but essentially the, a lot of scholars have categorized the book of Ezekiel into oracles that have occurred right after exile is started oracles that have occurred like kind of towards the end of exile when there's some semblance of future hope and then some oracles that have occurred after the exile has finished and as israel is being restored to their land mm -hmm. this passage that we read came from that middle group of based on the references that are happening it's something about the late exile period where there is some identifiable future hope. And I think that comes through really clearly in this passage. And all of these oracles are really trying to make sense of this, again, really devastating event in Israel's history. And in the process of returning to their homeland, after generations in exile, trying to remind themselves who God is and whose people they are. And so that's where this passage comes along. And in these oracles and portrayals of restoration god is the primary speaker or you know ezekiel says this is what god says and then goes into all these things about what god is going to do to restore israel and i i do think seth as you mentioned before the idea of going back to the garden of eden would have been a message that resonated with them because they're thinking about being restored to the way things were, if that's if that makes sense, and I, I resonate with your your hesitation about thinking about going back to the past, but I think in Israel's case that was a message of significant hope and something they could cling on to as they tried to navigate their life in exile. But does any of that stand out to you as particularly helpful for looking at this this passage in particular? This idea that this is toward the end of the exile, when there's like some hope, definitely does. Like I feel like when I was reading it, I was like getting excited. Like, oh, we're going to rebuild this stuff. Like this is exciting, right? What was old and, and torn down is going gonna, is gonna to be built up as good news in some way. And that these people were going to come back. And a lot of people were going to live in these cities. Like that seems like good news too. I don't know if you've had this experience kind of going back to your 
to our original question it's like if you go to a mall that's desolate and like eerily yeah. empty like it's just it's kind of creepy i don't know mm-hmm. like this is it's like the opposite like there's like there's like something about a city that's like vibrant and yeah. lively that's comforting yeah and it, it, definitely connection to the to that first question as well but there is there is something both creepy about experiencing those spaces that are empty and vacant that once had a lot of a life. Then there's also something to me that's incredibly beautiful about those spaces being reclaimed and repurposed and revitalized in a way that either reflects the way they used to be or reimagines how they can be a space where people gather and people connect. Um, I think that idea of restoration and reclaiming these spaces that are really desolate is actually a key point, not only in this narrative, but it's also a key point in, as I was talking about, like Israel's re-identification with who God is. This seems to be a key characteristic that God is a God who is not seeking to destroy the things that are evil but is seeking to restore the good that was in things to the way that they were intended to be. Uh, And that idea of restoration, that idea of all these things happening so that the nations can know that God is God. That verse in this passage, I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it as well. This idea of God's faithfulness and persistence that God is who God says God is and showing that Israel's actual restoration is not just a beneficial thing for them, but it's central to God's character. Hmm. So I think in in terms of where I thought we were going, I think we're kind of dancing on the idea of what's the point of this passage. I I think so too. And I think for me, as I think back to, ninth grade Jonathan that was reading Ezekiel I carried an assumption that I know a lot of Christians carry was that there's so much wrong and evil and broken with the world that God is seeking to destroy it in some way and passages like this one and instruction that I've received since then have been a really challenging but a really eye-opening shift to think about a God who draws life out of places that seem desolate rather than just saying, oh, things are going on here and I'm going to level everything. That image is so powerful and I've been so grateful for that change. And I, I just, I guess I put before you the question of, when we have that kind of perspective shift, what changes for us other than that idea that God wants to destroy the world? Like what changes about our theology, about the way that we interact with each other and interact with the world around us? Is there anything that stands out to you as things that that particular belief would shift? I've thought about this idea a little bit too. Maybe it's because we have similar theological educations. But one of the things that is always striking to me is the way that our our justice or prison system like precludes the ability for this this transformation and restoration to take place. 
Right. That if we believe in the reforming capacity of people, then that would that would drastically change the way that we that we think about how we incarcerate them and what it looks like when they're incarcerated, right? It's not like a holding cell in which they sit in there for an indefinite period of time. But rather than that people are there to be restored and renewed and to to help society and then to return to society and rejoin in a way that's that's functioning and that doesn't continue to to exclude them was that was that helpful or not really no it definitely was okay i I I think no that's okay and i think for me i was i was still kind of stuck in the general and you brought it to like a really concrete application of this too in those practices that you outlined you can kind of identify the assumption on which our so-called criminal justice system is based and it's that humans are inherently flawed and need to be punished. Exactly. And, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and that we can't fix it. Yeah. But that's how people are made, and it's stagnant. Well, and isn't that such a central part of so much Christian theology, too, is this idea that humanity is broken and flawed and evil, and only God's intervention can give anyone any hope of accessing anything good and joy-filled in their lives. And to be clear, I think there on some level, there's some truth about that divine intervention piece of it. But I also believe that that intervention began with the creation of humans that were identified as and are essentially good and have the capacity for both tremendous good and tremendous harm. Just placing, placing that characteristic on all humans from the beginning takes out of mind this picture of God restoring life out of devastation. And I think I mentioned it briefly before, but I don't think it's any coincidence that this passage almost immediately precedes the passage about the Valley of Dry Bones. And this passage is incredible, and I encourage anyone to go read it in the first part of Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel has this vision of a valley with bones as far as he can see. And first, the the wind of the Spirit comes through and kind of binds the, binds the bones back together, I think the tendons and the muscles. And then it happens again, and these groups of bones and tendons and muscles begin to take on more human form. And then one more time, the spirit comes in like a wind and this time blows life into these human forms. And the fact that that image of restoration starts with human bones, like images Mm. of death and destruction, rather than starting with nothing, I think is a powerful example of the way that God has chosen to work in the world. So looking into this passage, I cracked open a commentary I have called the Global Bible Commentary, which has uh, biblical scholars from all around the world commenting on different verses and different books of the Bible. And the scholar who wrote about this passage is from Argentina. His name's Samuel Almada. And he identifies 
a number of ways that in Argentina, the capitalistic and economic pursuits of the Argentinian government are really devastating some of the indigenous populations in certain regions of Argentina. And as he's talking about this passage and these themes in Ezekiel in general of restoration and images like the ones that we see here of God rebuilding cities that have been ruined and retilling and bringing life out of land that had been devastated, he talks about what are the things, not only how can we restore life, but how can we tear things down to the point that they're ready to be restored? Hmm. So he's talking hmm. about the difference between building from the bones versus trying to reform and make minor tweaks here and there and thinking that the way of the reign and realm of God is not to adjust the systems of power in minor ways so they look a little bit more like Jesus, but is to tear down and break down and really exist and thrive among the people who are on the margins and who are being cast aside by these systems of power. So I guess the question becomes, like, what are some examples of ways that we can kind of join God's work to pave the way for this kind of restoration? This is a huge question. I know. <laughs> well, you mentioned you mentioned the criminal justice system before. Is there anything about that that you think stands out as like ways we can kind of work against what is currently existing so that something more in line with this image of restoration can take its place? The way I think of our criminal justice system largely is it's, I think I used this word before, it's like a holding tank. That it, that it's, the, it's there to, to kill time. And I just wonder if, the, if a better way to think about it isn't that it's a time of transformation. Like it's, it's almost like, if I can use this, it's like a Lent. Hmm. Like in which like people give something up, um, but that, that relinquishing is supposed to be in some way transformative. I'm not sure our justice system has the angle of really being transformative. Like it's so no. focused on the, on the giving up, right? Yeah, I'm really not sure that it is either. And, and I think part of that is evident by both the systems that feed into our prison systems and the experience of folks who are recently incarcerated as they attempt to reintegrate into society. You know, things from the school to prison pipeline to issues of recidivism or kind of this, this cycle of being in and out of prison, kind of this revolving door idea because of the ways that being imprisoned and being charged with crimes that place you there so disadvantage you in life afterwards. And so it's this polarized narrative of, oh, you need to do your time for whatever crime you've been convicted of. But also, even when you've done that time, you're still paying for it in the long run too. And so there's all sorts of questions that we can ask just about this particular this particular topic, you know, what are the ways that people end up in prison that are not fair and not just? 
where are the kind of the inequities enforcing the law? How are our prisons operating? And then what does reintegration look like post-incarceration in a way that highlights and actually emphasizes and works towards the idea of restoration of a full sense of humanity rather than just, as you've talked about, the, the taking away of certain rights and privileges in order to make someone think about what they've done or something like that. One of the fascinating things about our prison system is where we build centers for incarceration. Mm. Like we often build them, at least the federal ones, like in the country and they're far away from everything else. So right. even if you have family who wants to come visit you, it's extremely difficult for them to get there. The visiting hours are often so short. And I just think when we think about ways in which people are transformed, one of the ways that they're transformed is by being around other people, and particularly other people that care about them and that they care about. And we've made that intentionally really difficult. Like we've moved it away. So I'm not, at some level, I'm not sure this is thinking big enough, but I think one of the things, one of many things we can do is to have centers that are rehabilitating that are often near where people lived before. And I wonder if that's one way we can prevent this recidivism that you were talking about. Yeah. And this was probably worth mentioning earlier too, but I think our, you know, our musings about the prison system are, you know, we are privileged to be from, you know, to never have directly experienced these systems ourselves and at least in my experience like not have this system directly uh, affect my family in in any significant ways I don't know if that's the same for you but like acknowledging our privilege in this situation I think looks like recognizing the lack of personal impact that this devastating system has had on us when it is a system that is marked on devastating impact on not only the folks who are incarcerated but their families and friends and loved ones who have to experience the prison system from the outside so to speak mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm thinking about an image of restoration and have an interesting story related to the prison system um, so in 2001 in Lorton Virginia the last prisoner and the federal prison that's there and this is maybe about an hour outside of washington dc in northern virginia Uh, the last the last federal prisoner finished their sentence there and the prison is now an art center it's called the workhouse art center in lorton virginia and i don't want to claim this as a true instance of restoration that's directly related to a prison like it is an amazing transformation in how the space is used but honestly the prison moved from that location because more and more development was occurring in that area and Mm. the local citizens didn't want a federal prison in their neighborhood and had the wherewithal and the means to advocate for it to be moved elsewhere but as you pass through this neighborhood that used to be marked by these holding cells it is now a space of creativity and beauty and 
setting aside the reason and the rationale for that movement, that transformation, I think that really gets at this image that we heard about in this passage, this image of the land that was laid waste being like the Garden of Eden and the cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. And I think identifying the places, the systems that need that mark of restoration and working to (laughs) peel back the layers and get to the root causes of what they're about so that that restoration and that reclamation of those spaces and the reclamation of human rights and and human beings uh, for their own thriving and their own autonomy, that is such a beautiful picture of the restoration that God was offering to Israel through Ezekiel in the midst of their own experience of devastation. That's a better use of a prison than even a mall is for a college. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. (laughs) And I think that is a wonderful note to end on. (laughs) Can I pray for us? That'd be great. Let's pray. Living one, you stitch together the scraps to make something beautiful. You take the things in our lives, our communities, and our world that are deemed broken, and you make something new, something life-giving. Free us to give you our broken pieces and open our eyes to recognize the beauty all around us. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who makes beauty from ashes. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode, which will feature our very first special guests. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about Jeremiah 15, verses 10 to 14. But until then, leave us a review. Find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>